Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? Hello, I'm Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design. How to live a longer, healthier life. We are produced by InstaTracker, your science-based guide to optimize your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Nick Baird. So I want to say that it's a, a, a great pleasure for me to be here at the University of Illinois. I came here to be part of the scientific advisory board for uh, the Personalized Nutrition Initiative at University of Illinois. I was very impressed by what they are doing. And I uh, decided to capitalize on this opportunity and to, uh, to meet with Nick, which is an expert in exercise physiology and uh, basically discuss uh, what uh, Nick is doing and uh, how can us uh, uh, adopt uh, exercise physiology to allow us uh, uh, to live uh, better longer. So thank you so much for uh, uh, cleaning uh, an hour and a half or so from your busy time. Uh, Nick? Yep, no problem, Gil. Yeah, yeah, happy happy to be here. And by the way, Nick is currently in the middle of an experiment. He's uh, collecting a muscle biopsy from human. We'll discuss it later. It's very fascinating. I would love to see it, but I, I assume that I won't have time for that today. Uh, but uh, Nick, maybe we'll start with a, a background about yourself. Can you uh, provide uh, to our audience who is Nick? What have you done? What was your scientific yeah. endeavor? And so of course, Gil. Yeah. So who is Nick? Yeah, what a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, first and foremost, I'm an associate professor here at the University of Illinois. Um, primary affiliation is in the Department of Kinesiology and Community Health, affiliate with the Division of Nutritional Sciences, as well as uh, affiliate with the Personalized Nutrition Initiative, which Gil's here today to help, help with. So we appreciate that. Um, in terms of, you know, why, why science, I guess, is really the question. Um, I always said I was going to be a scientist or a firefighter, and so I'm here as a scientist, so you know something went wrong with the firefighting <laughs> aspect. No, um, seriously, I had a lot of great mentors in my life, um, just a lot of like-minded people. Uh, you know, obviously this, this starts um, with mentors, so as an undergrad, um, I was able to work at the, in the human performance lab under the tutelage of uh, Todd Trappy. Um, same place that Dave Costell came from, which is a legendary exercise physiologist. And um, sort of he inspired me uh, to be a scientist and then had an opportunity to head up north in Canada to work with Stu Phillips and over to the Netherlands with Luke Van Loon, all focused on exercise phys with an emphasis in muscle metabolism. So I said collectively those individuals were just a huge part of my life, kept me inspired. Uh, really made science fun, right? I always say, if you don't wake up with a smile on your face every, every day, what's the point? And those guys uh, were always supportive, always made sure the team was smiling and um, really kept me motivated to be in science as opposed to become a, a firefighter. So um, just, I love questions. Uh, I love uh, the culture in science. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, when you're around like-minded people, it's, you know, it's the best, yeah. 
Yeah, and I like the point that you mentioned about make science fun. In every occupation, if you don't like the job that you're doing, find a different job. Don't, That's it. Don't waste yeah. your time. You live only once. So I loved your attitude. Thank you so much for uh, this uh, uh, very uh, insightful uh, uh, answer. And uh, now I would like to start a, a, a deep dive into science and uh, specifically into uh, exercise physiology. So maybe let's start by uh, the basic. And uh, can you describe the different three types of muscle tissue that we have in our body? Yeah, sure. So I, by, by trade, my expertise is skeletal muscle physiology, but as Gil alluded to, I do have an expertise globally uh, in exercise phys. Um, so I can speak to that question, of course, Gil. Um, so the three types of muscle, we have skeletal muscle tissue, we have cardiac muscle tissue, as well as smooth muscle. Um, all playing specific roles to allow us to perform and exercise, uh, survive. <laughs> Do you have any, uh, any other specific questions related? Yeah, yeah. For example, what percentage of uh, uh, our uh, body is the skeletal muscle, if yeah. you can estimate? Yeah. So, I mean, depending on the modeling you're using, so body composition, you got to keep in mind, Gil, they're all estimates, right? There's never, some people forget um, that our tools are estimates and, with each estimate, yeah. there's pros and cons, but you know, using you know DEXA or the more gold standard estimates, um, the amount of skeletal muscle mass uh, that a healthy human has is about 40% of their total body mass is gonna be skeletal muscle, roughly 20% body fat, and then the rest would be non-muscle fat-free mass or everything else, essentially. And if you can uh, now look at uh, or try to compare, uh, let's say, the best weightlifter yeah. versus the most obese person, what is the, I'm trying to find the range. Where, I understand, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I understand what your, uh, your question. So, you know, it's interesting. It's all, like I said, absolute versus relative. These yeah. body fat percentages or what we're talking about are relative percents. So, you know, you know a, a powerlifter is going to have an absolute more muscle than you, you or I, but you know, ironically, some of their body fat percentages are going to be a little higher because that's conducive to their sport, yeah. right? So, you know, yeah, they have a lot of muscle, but they generally have a lot of fat tissue. Again, in powerlifting, it's all about leverages, power, right? Uh, obesity uh, is similar. You know, what's unique about obesity? They have, and they have a lot of absolute muscle, but I study protein turnover, skeletal muscle protein turnover. And so they have a bunch of, you know, obese individuals will have the same relative percentage roughly and obviously a higher percent body fat, but their protein pool is a little more uh, resistant to be renewed. So, you know, as we sit here, um, Gil, right now, um, you know, if you look, you know, if you want to look at your arm, uh, right now our muscle is in a constant state of turnover, right? Breaking down, building up, breaking down, uh, building up. So in roughly three months, we've completely renewed our complete skeletal muscle mass. Oh, interesting. Right? So the issue with obesity, why they got a big pool of muscle, they can't renew it as well, right? So that means these damaged proteins are staying around, which is leading to some of those metabolic issues that an obese individual has. So a lot of our job is to try to kickstart yeah. that muscle to help with the renewal to make sure we're getting high quality proteins um, in there. So, um, you know, the relative percentages are, are, are tough to conceptualize, of course. A power lifter, absolutely more mass. Honestly, an obese individual has usually, you know, 
than their healthy weight counterparts are going to have quite a big uh, absolute muscle. But the problem is that renewal of their muscle. They're just resistant to renewal. And we're trying to figure out how do we renew that muscle because adipose tissue, I'm sure as some of your other guests have said, it can talk to your muscle and do some negative things to mm. it. So, you know, there's that's a big puzzle in itself. We could probably spend two hours talking about clinical yeah. physiology, of course. No, that, that was uh, insightful. And uh, you mentioned uh, DEXA scan. Yeah. And I, that's something that I love. And I think that, uh, in my opinion, everyone in the world should do that. Yeah. Yeah. So can you yeah. explain to our audience what is DEXA scan? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's x-ray, essentially, radiation, right? So um, the beauty of it is low-dose radiation. You know, I'm a scientist, so obviously before we do anything, we have to get ethical approval. So yeah. we're really thoughtful about the tools we're using because at, at the bottom line, we've got to make sure research participants are, are safe. So it's just, uh, you know, it's an x-ray, and we're able to scan it and depend on how sophisticated you are with your modeling. You can do three compartment models, four compartment models. I collaborate with experts in body composition. Um, so I know, you know, just general ideas related to it. Um, but, you know, if you talk to a body composition expert, they'd be able to deep dive into it. And they're always thinking about the equations utilized to develop these compartments and, um, you know, trying to determine, you know, fat-free mass versus fat mass versus bone, ma bone mineral density, all these different aspects, yeah. 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 So, so just to add to what uh, uh, Nick said, basically DEXA can give you a lot of information. You can know what is a, a body fat percentage, what is your muscle uh, uh, percentage, bone mineral density, and also visceral fat. Yep. And all of that is uh, an amazing information for everyone that really want to live better longer because that's all of, uh, like bone mineral density is so important for us, uh, uh, especially for postmenopausal women, uh, because if you have a, a too little of that, you will break your bone. Uh, the muscle mass is important to protect your uh, uh, bones to, for breaking uh, down later and also uh, transfer you from uh, place to place. The adipose, uh, the adipose, uh, a tissue is uh, uh, important to have it low be, uh, because of some of the reasons that Nick mentioned. So it's it's literally a, a, a very important test. You can find it in some places in $100. So it's not something very expensive. And a lot of information, and I highly, highly recommend, by the way, I don't have any uh, interest, uh, financial interest in any of the decks. I just think that it's a, it's a good uh, a solution. Um, and uh, Nick, I, I want to continue with uh, uh, um, uh, to, to understand from you what are the uh, uh, benefits of uh, uh, engaging in regular exercise uh, on uh, skeletal uh, muscle. Yeah. And uh, uh, do you think that there is also impact on uh, cardiac muscle or it's only on uh, skeletal muscle? No, no, no. Obviously, all tissue is going to adapt. We're an integrative uh, system. So I sort of alluded to your muscles in a in a state of a turnover earlier, um, it experiences great uh, adaptive potential. Um, and so exercise is a, is a huge stimulus to, uh, to tell your muscle to adapt to, you know, according to whatever stimulus you place on it. So there is a concept of training specificity, which I'm sure you talked about. So generally, if you're a weightlifter um, um, and doing more hypertrophic uh, sort of protocols, your muscle will grow bigger. Um, because of, we call that hypertrophic protein remodeling. So when you do about a resistance exercise, you get an acute, acute increase in protein synthesis or the muscle building response, uh, particularly in the contractile pool. 
we call those myofibrillar proteins, the ones that's re responsible for force generation. So we're going to remodel that pool. And then when you continue to weight lift on a regular basis, th those acute increases in protein synthesis or muscle building were ultimately cultivated into bigger muscles. You know, we're an endurance exercise bout. It will focus on the contractile uh, proteins as well, but it's remodeling that pool to be more fatigue resistant. Um, you'll, you'll see a little more uh, stimulus for the mitochondria, which are the energy producing organelle in your muscle to adapt. Uh, mitochondrial are really, really special organelle in, their, in themselves. So I, I won't dive deep into that because that could be another hour uh, conversation. But it, sometimes um, we forget that weightlifting also can help with the oxidative capacity of your muscles. So lifting weights can help build new mitochondria, help their function, can help build new fat transporters, glu glucose transporters, build new capillaries, which yeah. is what you're talking about with regards to smooth muscle. Yeah. Um, so exercise has great potential. Same with cardiac muscle. It's, it's, it's adaptable, right? Um, your, your heart muscle will adapt. The left ventricle hypertrophy will so your left ventricle will grow bigger, gives it a bigger filling chamber. That means you can push more blood out to help perfuse your, your muscle, your skeletal muscles with, with blood um, and energy, nutrients. Um, just like, you know, your smooth muscle is there to help uh, to dilate, to make, to make perfusion or to bathe your muscle with the nutrients it's, it's need. So again, we're an integrative system. Even that stress from exercise on those vessels is a stimulus for those vessels, the smooth muscle to adapt as well. So, um, you know, I'm a muscle physiologist. Sometimes we get accused of thinking very re reductionist in nature. I'm always like, it's all about skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle. But thankfully all my years of training, they said, Nick, you got to think more holistically, think more integratively. And that really came uh, when I was over in the Netherlands with Luke Van Loon, he really, taught me to, to think more holistically and, um, you know, um, but you know, you gotta be an expert in something. Yeah. <laughs> I just chose skeletal muscle. Yeah. No, that's a very good answer. And now that we understand the basic of uh, muscle physiology, what happened to our muscle tissue during the aging uh, sure. process? Yeah. You know, this is, you know, the, the problem with age, not the problem, I think it's just a natural consequence of life, right? As we get older, life happens, routines change. Right. So what do we do? We become not only do we not participate in regular exercise training programs, but one of the, the big thing that we experience is are larger increases in sedentary behavior. Right. So we have longer periods of sitting um, then we are not making an active m movement, you know, because life changed. We're retired sometimes in, in terms of the aging population. They're no longer, you know, just getting regular periods of physical activity. So those acute periods of inactivity, what they do essentially is decrease the sensitivity of your skeletal muscle to stimuli. So we're less responsive to the food we're eating. We're less responsive to, to the exercise stimulus even, unless you're doing it regularly. So um, my point being is what we found, if you can move, <laughs> you can hold on to it, you know. Um, it does appear about after we hit this period about 80, this is the human work, um, some of the rodent stuff can show s other stuff, but about 80, we do start to see some of the molecular environment start to change a little bit. So there is a bit of a tipping point, but um, you know, my mentor, Luke Van Loon, um, he goes, his often philosophy is, you know, you know, speaking about, you know, I view 60, 60 is not old, right? 70 is not old. Yeah. Um, 
your muscle doesn't truly, I know there's some epigenetic work out there, but your muscle really doesn't know how old it is, right? If you can, the problem is, is that we, <laughs> we teach it not to understand some of these fundamental stimuli. And, you know, a 50-year-old, 60-year-old can respond. The issue sometimes is that our connective tissue, it doesn't like to remodel the same. So we get these acute insults on some of our connective tissues, um, and that's what's transferring the force out of our, out of our muscle to the bone for movement, right? So the question is why, there's ultimately, anecdotally, you see obviously an impact of age on performance, right? So you could say, but it's something else more than just, you know, it is more than just skeletal muscle. Our skeletal muscle is quite resilient. It can maintain. So there's probably some secondary insults that are, that are happening. I mean, this is, you know, rather something with the mitochondria, rather something with the stem cells, rather it's something with certain aspects of the force transfer, force transfer proteins in our skeletal muscle. Um, there might be some dysregulation, but, you know, when we just view skeletal muscle as a whole, it's responsive. Just, you know, minimizes that sedentary behavior. And it's important to keep in mind, Gil, that sometimes um, you can still hit our physical activity guidelines, but still be quite sedentary in your behavior, yeah. right? So you need to make an, you know, we call these exercise snacks. So if you find yourself sitting for prolonged periods of time, get up and move. Rather it's doing body weight uh, exercises, you need to break up those sedentary periods because even even during those short periods, we're making our muscles less sensitive to these stimuli. So we need to break these up. Even my, you know, I'm, I'm 42, so I'm a young man, Gil, you know. You are. You are <laughs> I, I know. I am. I tell, you know, it's, it's a problem. I yeah. teach a lot of 20-year-olds. <laughs> they think I'm an old man. I'm always, I'm not old, guys. I am a young man. Yeah, you are. But even at, you know, 42 years old, I'm actively thinking, you know, as an academic, we sit at our desk for long periods of time. Yeah. I get up make sure I'm breaking up that sedentary behavior. I'm all, I also do targeted exercise to yeah. make sure I'm hitting my physical activity guidelines, but I still am really thoughtful about breaking up sedentary behavior. And again, if we can, if, as we age, if we can just make sure we move more, we'll remain resilient and we can remain active in family and community life. You know, exercise is really the key. You know, you know I'm the chair of the exercises medicine on, on campus, and that's our goal is to try to incorporate exercise into campus culture, yeah. right? Because it has these tremendous health benefits, yeah. not only for physical health, but mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we see it, as you said, uh, you, you are more aware of the literature than me, but I, I see it in the literature that uh, the uh, impact of exercise starting to gain more and more acceptable Accept, accept, acceptable that uh, uh, basically the exercise and the, uh, the timing of the exercise and what you are doing can help you a lot uh, in the later years of your life and uh, make them from miserable to enjoyable. So if you are, uh, in, it's like investing for the 401k in a way. If you are, if you will uh, uh, exercise when you are young and exactly not, exactly as you said, Nick, you finish your college, you go to the desk work and you're sitting for 12 hours a day. If you'll do it all your life, it's not good. Try to start doing it. If you ask me when to start, start as early as possible and continue to exercise and, uh, and do it as much as you can. Yeah, that's the point. You know, there's a big advocate, you know, strong is becoming the new healthy as well. So if we can focus on physical act, you know, physical strength, yeah. you know, it can help us safeguard against these declines that we ultimately might experience with aging. So the idea here is, as Gil was alluding to, and we're advocates, start now, 
make sure you're physically strong now because ultimately life happens. Sometimes you do encounter a, a catabolic insult that might cause you to be um, uh, inactive for a bit. But if we can safeguard now, it will help us protect us later. So, and you know, that can be at any point along that life continuum, right? It's never, I mean, yeah, as you said, never too late yeah. to start. So, so uh, we now understand that uh, exercising is important, but what is, if we look at uh, uh, its effect on uh, uh, metabolic health, bone density, and uh, uh, daily function, a normal sure. function as we age, w what do you see? Yeah, um, yeah, so skeletal muscle, uh, again, I'm a skeletal muscle physiologist, so I, I take a lot of muscle-centric approaches to uh, my idea. So, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, we always argue as a muscle physiologist, not argue, but highlight, um, <laughs> rather. <laughs> as a scientist, we like to argue. <laughs> yeah, I know, I always have to adjust my, my tone. Uh, yeah. That initial inkling is that, you know, you got to adjust, not only argue, but you got to constantly adjust your ego, yeah. too. So there's a little life tip as well. But, um, so skeletal muscle, a couple of cool things it has for whole body metabolic health is um, due to the virtue of its mass, it's the largest side of postprandial glucose di disposal. So, yeah. you know, obviously, and then by virtue of its mass, it's a large site of fat oxidation. Um, it's also one of the biggest contributors to basal metabolic rate, which for most of us is the biggest determinant of total daily energy expenditure. So if we can protect our muscle, we can protect against weight regain. And that's especially period, uh, important when you're going, you know, under periods of weight loss. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, that's a, another topic that you probably, we don't have time for. Um, so metabolically, beyond just physical function, which you alluded to, so obviously skeletal muscle um, is the force generator of our bodies, right? So, uh, you know, not to get deep into it, but you know, we have contractile proteins that form a cross bridge. Um, that generates force, we transfer that force out to the bone, out to the tendon for, for movement. Um, so we, yeah, muscle is crucial for power generation, physical movement, et cetera. But again, we sometimes can't forget that aspect of um, full, full whole body metabolic health as well with those points I talked about. Excellent. And uh, now we understand hopefully pretty well the, the muscle work. Uh, and uh, a lot of our audience are interested about uh, a, a protein intake. Mm -hmm. And uh, specifically, uh, we know, uh, a, a, again, in the last few years, we see more and more understanding that um, the majority of us are not consuming enough proteins. And especially when you are uh, uh, trying to build muscle, the muscle built from protein, so uh, instead of breaking the protein from other place, if you uh, 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 provide to the uh, to your body the right amount of muscle, you lose, uh, sorry, protein, it, it will use that and then allow you to build the protein. But then there are a lot of questions that are very practical question. For example, what is the best time to consume protein post exercise? Do you have any uh, opinion about that? I do. Yeah. So, yeah, we have. Um, I. So there's all. Oh, so protein nutrition is a hot topic. Uh, I've been a protein nutrition for a number of years. Um, so I'm not sure how far your, your listeners have been. So you said something about we need, in Western culture, we're big protein eaters, right? It's just the, the nature. I mean, if I would do a dietary recall on, and I have here in the, you know, I'm in Illinois in the Midwest, um, almost everybody's eating 
above our, the protein RDA or the recommended dietary allowance, okay, Gil. And so I'm actually constantly trying to do the opposite, <laughs> um, especially with weightlifters, is I'm trying to advocate or tell them that they're largely consuming too much protein mm. in their diet, okay. Uh, weightlifters are notorious for eating a lot based on that notion that, oh, my muscles made of protein, the more protein I eat, the better. Okay, so I just want to talk generally about some of the cool parts about weightlifting. So weightlifting is fundamentally anabolic. Okay, and what I mean by that, so fundamentally anabolic, anabolic means uh, a growth state. Essentially. Yeah, building muscle. Yeah, building muscle. Yeah. Um, so when you undergo weightlifting, it enhances the nutrient sensitivity of your skeletal muscle. All right, so um, we're better able to use that protein that we just ate, all right? And not only does it do it for that first meal after that exercise bout, but that nutrient sensitivity is quite prolonged in nature. We have work from my PhD that showed um, that nutrient sensitivity can last up to a day, if not longer, right? So you're making better use of protein nutrition after acute bout of weightlifting, provided it's that sufficient volume. Um, the other thing it does, it makes better use of the amino acids that are being broken down, we're able to kick those back up in the skeletal muscle better. Yeah. All right, so we're breaking down muscle, we're getting increased nitrogen retention is what we call that. So weightlifters enhance nutrient sensitivity, better nitrogen retention or amino acid recycling. Both of those things are telling us as physiologists that they're better at using the protein in the diet. But yet, what are they doing? They're eating more <laughs> in far excess. So guess what they're doing when they do that? They are upregulating proteolytic pathways or protein breakdown pathways. And so, which, and they're also training their gut that there's plenty of substrate coming in. So guess what your gut starts to do? Your, your splanchnic tissues, it starts to steal more of those amino acids out of the diet. All right, so if you're a, a protein over consumer, uh, you're basically creating an inefficient system. So now I have a weightlifter that is doing all this cool stuff to make them more sensitive to their food, they're offsetting that by eating too much protein, all right? So normally what I'm doing is we don't need to eat that much protein in the diet. You can, you can come back here, you know, eat more like a normal human, um, which I would argue is about 1.2 grams per kg per day, which would be roughly, you know, for an 80 kilo individual, they probably would need only after a weightlifting bout, about 20 grams of protein. The problem is with those, and we'll talk about this later, those isolated protein powders, you can yeah. pack in a bunch of, a bunch of protein. So um, I kind of lost sight of what, what I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, the question yeah. was about uh, the timing. Oh, the also. timing, yeah. And you said that what I heard from you, the timing is like even 24 hours yeah. after, it's okay. Yeah, right? that's, yeah, the timing, so timing is a big topic, right? So. You know, a lot of this work is done in the weightlifting. I do, I'm also very familiar with protein nutrition for endurance athletes, but most of it's aimed at weightlifters. Um, so a weightlifter, for some reason, uh, they also think that that anabolic window of potential is very short. Like so, two hours, I'm yeah, hearing a lot about yeah, two hours. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, the reality is it's, 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 it's much longer in, in nature, as I alluded to. So normally, you know, you can, do your weightlifting bout, you don't need to consume a protein shake. You can go home and eat a nice, high-quality, food-first, whole-food protein meal. 
and that's going to be really anabolic. And we could, we can talk later about food versus protein powders because yeah. that's a whole topic in itself. So for a weightlifter, nutrient timing is less important. Now, from a, if you're a practitioner, especially if you're dealing with athletes, sometimes I wouldn't say you, you tell some fibs because an athlete sometimes, if you tell them, oh, it's not that important, they just won't do it. So a lot of times, if you're a sports nutritionist, you'll, you'll advocate that timing is really important because you want your athlete to, to see them. Yeah, uh, to consume it's it. Like, it's like, it's like yeah. the old guinea pig in the lab. You want to be sure yeah. that they have done it. Yeah, yeah so I mean, that's, so that's more, do they, you know, in that case, you know, it's more a comfort level for the practitioner. Yeah. Now for the everyday individual, no, they don't need to be carrying around these protein shakes. You know, so they're slamming it immediately after the, the bout. Now, if you can go home and eat, eat food, again, a lot of this is going to depend on your training, like your schedule. Some of us live a hectic life. Protein supplements are convenient, yeah. um, but there's nothing special. If anything, they're less special than food. The other aspect is some individuals will advocate for uh, pre-workout nutrition. Um, there's no benefit from eating <laughs> protein before your weightlifting bout versus after. The only problem is if you eat it before, some people can suffer GI distress. So you're gonna have that substrate sitting around in yeah. your belly. And so if you're uh, doing heavy squats, you know, you know, as I used to lift weights heavily, I, I wouldn't want a lot of substrate in my belly, especially when I'm squatting, because yeah. it, you might wanna make sure that trash can's nearby if you do that. Yeah. Um, so eating after is, is, is fine. So again, who are you dealing with? Protein nutrition exists on a continuum. Um, so, you know, if you're dealing with athletes, you might say, make sure you have that protein shake so you see them, but it's not really necessary. Yeah. No, you can go home and eat. So I would argue that nutrient timing has been, has been, I mean, a lot of this, you know, I don't, is aggressive sports marketing campaigns, okay. right? That has advocated for, you need this protein powder. It's, it's superior. Um, you, you don't need it. It's fine if you, it's not going to hurt you, but it's not really helping you either. Okay. As a weightlifter. But, and, and again, for the window of time, you are saying that, uh, let me ask you a, a theoretical question. I, I exercised and I consumed a protein powder. Uh, sorry, I exercised and then yep. I uh, went home and uh, eat a meal only uh, six hours after. That's still okay? I mean, yeah. So, yeah. So, what happens is, so when we perform about a weightlifting, you see, uh, this big increase in the muscle building response, yeah. okay? So protein synthesis. When you eat, you get an additive response to that already elevated protein synthesis. So what I'm saying is nutrition and exercise are synergetic, synergistic. Absolutely. Yeah, they interact. So what happens is throughout recovery, you, you see that large rise in protein synthesis and it slowly starts to wane during recovery. So my point being is at six hours, you're probably not getting the same push that you would at three hours, yeah. right? Because your, your exercise-induced increase in protein synthesis is starting to- Decay. Yeah. Decay, exactly, yeah. or yeah, wane. So my point is, you don't need to eat within 30, 60 minutes, but you, yeah, you probably, you know, to maximize the anabolic potential of that bout, within zero to three hours, I guess okay. is the most overriding. Okay, so you have a window of three hours, and in that window- I don't like that word window, but yeah, yeah, yeah you can say window, that. Okay, yeah. let's say the best timing yeah, is yeah. zero to three hours, because- uh, But you would still win at six hours, but you're, you're probably yeah, losing but it's some. That, but yeah. the best is uh, in this, uh, not window, but- uh, You can say window, I'm yeah, sorry, but yeah. it, it just, it sort of emphasizes yeah. Yeah, this, yeah. Yeah, you I'm don't sorry. lose it if you do it at three, min three. three hours and 15 minutes, but yeah. at that time uh, span, 
you will have the better the best response That's of right. the protein that you consume. Yeah. Now you you uh, you started to talk, and we wanted to discuss it later, but I I want to discuss it now about uh, basically protein powder versus a, a real yeah. meal. Yeah. So can you discuss about that and sure. what is sure sure. Okay, I'm going to have to put a caveat out there. I'm, I'm a big food-first approach. Um, so food-first advocates for the use of whole foods yeah. within a performance nutrition menu. Um, but food-first doesn't mean food only. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that, depending on, again, your schedule, protein supplements can be useful, all right? Um, but my point is they shouldn't be advocated as superior, and I'm yeah. going to tell you why, okay? Um, I have spent a lot of time studying um, protein within this natural food matrix, right? Um, so f- food is more than just protein, especially protein foods, I guess is what I'm alluding to. It consists of other nutrients, right? You can manipulate different, uh, we call that a food matrix. So the mm-hmm. food matrix is essentially um, how the chemical dynamics of the food, so it's structure the nutrients inside it. So we can manipulate food, the food matrix by mincing up a food source, right? Yeah. And so we can improve digestibility but like, like that and thus protein quality. But um, what we're finding out is that why the, the amino acids are the primary drivers of your remodeling response, these amino acids can get help from the food matrix. So we call these food matrix effects. All right, so the food matrix can also modulate how these amino acids are being delivered into circulation. An isolated protein supplement, it's just that. It's kind of boring. There's nothing in it to help it. It's convenient. It tastes good sometimes because they put flavor in them, Um, but it's nothing exciting. It is what it is. It's protein, right? And the problem with eating an isolated protein powder, because there's nothing else in it, it's isolated, we always look at the appearance rates of of amino acids, right? So what you want to do is you eat food, it gets digested and absorbed, and then you see these amino acids showing up in the circulation, right? Now, one of the most popular protein powders is whey protein, right? We're all familiar with that. Of course. A lot of people call it a fast digesting protein, right? And what they mean by that is when you eat it, these amino acids from that food source are showing up pretty darn quick. So within, within 60 minutes, they're peaking. 60 to 90 minutes. Now, when you eat a whole food source of protein, it doesn't peak till two hours later, right? So whey, they're thinking, oh, it's great. It gets into circulation, providing a lot of signals to your muscle to help it recover. Yeah. But guess what else it's doing? So whenever you see a large increase in amino acids, especially rapidly, those large amount of amino acids in a short amount of time are a strong signal for oxidation or waste well, yeah, some of them are going to your muscle. You're wasting a lot of that because you're just getting them in too quick, right? Now, as an athlete, um, if you're doing repeated bouts of exercise, you sort of want that. You don't want stuff sitting around your belly, yeah. right? But most of us are not doing multiple training bouts throughout the day where, you know, that fast digesting protein is, would be that useful. Um, so food is great because... Um, it can help with diet quality, yeah. yeah, because it's delivering more than just protein. It can modulate how those amino acids are be de- being delivered. It can make better use of, of the substrate, so you don't need as much, right? Isolated, food pro- or isolated protein powders, they have no help, nothing. It's yeah. just that. It's very boring. It's not exciting beyond the chocolate flavor that they throw, throw in to help with 
taste. Um, so food is good for diet quality, making better use of the food protein, and arguably, we're showing it's even more anabolic at the same relative dose, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, you can't go wrong with a whole so, food so matrix. So food, food is superior. 100%. Yeah, then you have a, a... But there's nothing wrong with protein yeah. powders. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm, I want to ask about the distribution during the day. So you said that you basically you exercise. Let's assume that yeah. uh, uh, we are now at 9 a.m. You went to an exercise session of an hour. You lift yeah. a lot of weight. And uh, you can consume, let's go with the whey protein just as an example. Sure, okay? sure. So you can consume 20 gram or 40 gram of a, a whey protein right. at, at a time, which sounds like, from what I heard from you, a lot of it will go for a waste. Yeah. Or you can divide it and come and say, okay, uh, my strategy is I'll consume 10 gram now and 10 gram in uh, two hours. Yeah. And then, what, what is uh, better? Okay, so again, I'm, um, I'm an advocate of thinking... So I, my, my thinking, Gil, I don't use these uh, bottom-up approaches. I think from the top okay. down, all sure. right? So you, you're asking a very <laughs> dynamic question. Um, again, going back to your personalized nutrition initiative, yeah. our diets are very personalized, right? So first off, I'd have to think about what is the dietary pattern, meaning am I dealing with a vegetarian eating pattern? Am I dealing with somebody who's eating a lot of high-quality food proteins, so a lot of animal-based food proteins, yeah. okay? I would hypothesize, and I, we're running studies right now to confirm this hypothesis. So, uh, for example, I would hypothesize that timing, or distribution rather, is less relevant for someone who's eating an animal-based diet or a, you, you know, it's a U.S. healthy eating, uh, eating pattern, essentially. So people who's regularly incorporating animal-based food proteins. Why? Because animal-based food proteins or higher quality, right? Their amino acid composition yeah. basically is, is good at delivering target amounts of amino acids to help our body tissues. The issue is sometimes somebody who's eating vegan. Yeah. Now I would argue, okay, so it's, it's hard to pin down this until we get some of our data out that, you know, if I talk to somebody who's on a vegan eating pattern, um, the data we have is not very fair right now because a lot of this is viewed based on isolated plant foods, right? But most vegans, if not all vegans, they're not eating a single plant food, right? They're using complementary protein pairings. So they're taking, you know, you know, beans and rice is the most classic one. So they're taking two food groups, mixing it together to help that amino acid composition to make it more like an animal-based food. Mm -hmm. I would hypothesize that if you're eating a vegan diet, I think distribution is probably more important than somebody who's eating a U.S. style eating pattern. So a lot of the data shows that if you're eating animal-based food, distribution seems you can, you can wash it out a little bit, the importance of it, just so you're achieving a target amount on, in the day, but I don't think that's true with a vegan-based diet. Okay. I think distribution, I think getting a steady intake of these amino acids are gonna be more important to somebody who's, who's, who's not eating uh, uh, yeah. meat or meat in particular. Yeah. Yeah. You know, those are just high quality yeah. foods. Yeah, yeah. so, so, so let, let me, uh, sorry that I'm uh, pushing on that point because I think that this point is very confusing for uh, our uh, uh, viewer. Yeah. So uh, let's assume that I eat uh, 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 meat once a day, okay? Yeah. And I eat chicken uh, and I exercise in the morning. Sure. 
where is the better time for me to consume the chicken at lunch or at dinner? No, I mean, so, so one of the, yeah, so you're, you're talking about somebody's only eating one meal time a day, Gil? No, yeah. I eat a meal, okay. but I eat uh, uh, only a protein, like a, a, um, animal-based protein once a day. The, the other part, let's say, at, I, I will decide whether at lunch I will eat the chicken sure. or at dinner I will eat uh, rice and beans. How would eat it during recovery from exercise, Gil? I mean, ideally, you're going to be incorporating in it. You know, really, breakfast is one. We really advocate for positioning protein foods at, at breakfast because that tends to be a low protein time for a lot of them, yeah. for a lot of people, you know, okay. and I sort of alluded to, uh, you know, not to tell your listeners what you have for breakfast, I said <laughs> a granola bar, right? Um, I really should have had a, a more protein fortified breakfast yeah. because um, that's going to help with satiety through the day. Yeah. It's going to help with glucose control. But, you know, if we're thinking purely from an exercise perspective, um, you exercise, I would really want some high quality food protein okay. during that recovery window, you know, and I use the word window, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> within that, you know, as I alluded to within that zero to three. Okay, so, 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 so and now I understand. So what you are saying, if you eat a, 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 a animal-based protein only once a day, the best time to, to consume it is post-exercise. I would argue that's, that's true. I, would, I think that's true. I don't have data to support yeah. that, um, but if I was... Okay. navigating that world where I was only eating, you know, animal-based foods once a day. I would say that's a good time um, to eat it. I would really try to find a way to eat it at breakfast as well, as I, yeah. I, I alluded to. But I think the biggest point, the best take-home point, a lot of the current practitioners are advocating or suggesting that distribution is less relevant provided you're eating enough absolute protein. Yeah. But keep in mind, what they're recommending is 1.6 grams per kg per day, if not upwards to 2.2 grams per kg per day of food protein. Our RDA for food protein is 0.8 grams per day. So they're advocating that you need roughly double the amount of food protein in our diets to help support the resistance exercise adaptive response. I'm not completely on board with that. I think you don't need to shoot for those high levels, provided you're more clever with how you eat, okay? I would argue that we can get closer to the protein RDA, quit trying to shove all of this food protein on the people's plates, provided we, t we actually educate and tell them the importance of some of this stuff, right? It's, of course, easier messaging for your listeners if I just say, yeah, eat a lot, nothing else matters, right? That's a very generic, easy to translate. No, no we, we like yeah. a complex solution. No, we, we like it. We you like know, to find it. So, yeah, so, so my point is, if you're eating, yeah, you, can, you can either eat a lot and you can offset any issue with protein quality, any issue with distribution. But if you're like me, protein is expensive and you want to be a little more clever with your food protein, eat closer to the protein RDA, um, you know, you know, I would say you probably need a little more than the 0.8, you know, closer to 1.2. Um, then you probably got to be a little more thoughtful about distribution. You yeah. certainly got to be more thoughtful about protein quality. Um, so, um, but, you know, if you're just eating a lot, yeah, don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm trying to summarize and correct me if I'm wrong, what I learned from you is first a... a, a um, Animal-based protein is superior on the uh, uh, on the supplement uh, on the yeah. on the isolated. Can I put a caveat yeah. in there? Animal-based protein is higher quality. Okay, that's when you, a lot of these qu protein quality scores are viewed 
I eat chicken, I eat beef, yeah. I eat whatever. But nobody eats like that, yeah. right? And yes, when you compare single foods to animal, you know, so if you compare a single plant-based food to an animal-based food, animal-based foods are higher quality, of yeah. course. But what do we do? We eat them as part of a, a whole food matrix, rather. Yeah. So you're able to improve the quality of a plant-based meal by using, you know, like I said, complementary protein yeah. pairings. And I use the example beans and rice is the most classic one. Yeah, but that's not what how our protein quality markers are currently developed. They're developed, you know, very reductionist in nature. Like I have beef, what's the score? I have yeah. soy protein, what's the score? And yes, when you do that, animal base is superior, Yeah, no doubt. So so the, the second point that I learned from you that is interesting is that uh, basically the, the window that our muscle builds itself is like around 24 hours, but it's a get to a peak between zero to three hours. So if you want to find the best timing, uh, I would say zero to three hours, but even if you do it at uh, three hours, 30 minutes, it's not the end of the world. So don't no. don't get a panic about that. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So your, your window of anabolic potential after weightlifting is very prolonged. Endurance exercise is another story. Okay, okay so we'll, we'll touch it in a second because I want to summarize this point. Sure. And, and then uh, another uh, very good point that uh, not a lot of uh, people are thinking about it, distribute your uh, protein consumption during the day. And we have uh, usually our breakfast, uh, at least in uh, the US, is very low in protein. So if you can, try to uh, distribute some of your protein consumption to, uh, to the breakfast. I would, yes, yeah, so that's really the focus. We need to make sure that we're eating a protein-rich breakfast. Yeah. And that would, like I said, help manage energy intake throughout the day um, as well. And also it's been shown to have better uh, control of, um, you know, postprandial glucose. Yeah. Okay, so Nick, now you mentioned uh, uh, weightlifting and different than yeah. endurance exercise. Sure. So please elaborate on that. Yeah, like I said, these are uh, usually these are multiple conversations. Um, so weightlifters, I said, weightlifting is fundamentally anabolic. It makes our muscles more sensitive to the food we eat. We don't experience that same scenario after a, you know, I'll use running, a running bout, yeah. a cycling bout, etc. So exercise is catabolic. Just you know, during recover during the recovery period, we become anabolic, but exercise in itself is catabolic, meaning we're, we're breaking, we're using energy, we're breaking down substrates. Okay, so a lot of times as an exercise physiologist, we view protein as quite trivial for, for as a substrate to allow us to exercise, right? Normally we're thinking fat, carbohydrate. And you know, protein, we always say we have a protein requirement, really we have an amino acid requirement, right? So, um, so if we zoom in on certain amino acids related to exercise metabolism, related to running, some of them become more interesting. One in particular is, is leucine, okay? So what we do is we can, we'll break down leucine during exercise, we'll, we'll steal its carbons to help us make acetylcholine, which we'll, we utilize for metabolism to help us make ATP. I don't yeah, need yeah. to get into biochemistry here. <laughs> um, um, so. What we see is leucine oxidation goes up. So uh, not protein oxidation as a whole is quite trivial, but certain amino acids do get oxidized. So leucine is sort of a special amino acid. Um, it's primarily oxidized in your skeletal muscle um, as, opposed, as opposed to getting extracted by your splanchnic tissues. So we see leucine oxidation go up, all right? 
So you're running, you're oxidizing leucine, and then you stop running, um, you're usually going to have some carbohydrate to help replenish your muscle glycogen. You should also have some protein, of course, to help your muscles remodel, which is what a weightlifter is constantly thinking. Yeah. But what a runner sometimes isn't recognizing is they also need to be worried about all that leucine oxidation, right? So not only do they, so a runner's fighting two battles. They got to replace those amino acids that were lost during exercise, but also provide enough substrate to allow their muscles to recover. So endurance exercise places more stress on your protein nutrition. So normally, I'm trying to advocate for a runner to incorporate more protein into their post-exercise eating regimen to make sure they're fully recovered. And we have data to support that, Gil. So um, essentially, but the problem with the runner is you can't, if you put too much protein in that post-exercise meal, it's going to offset the other nutrients, right? And or carbohydrates are real important. So normally this is where I sort of said I'm an advocate for food first, but not food only. So sometimes a runner can benefit from using an isolated food protein. So, you know, they can mix that with some carbohydrates, take an isolated protein supplement. Is, is it uh, uh, better to consume brain-chain amino acids specifically or a, a full protein is okay? Yeah, no, I'm not an, I'm a huge, I'm not an advocate of using branched chain amino acid okay. supplements. My point, I, my, my point is always is why eat three when you can eat them all, okay. right? <laughs> and, and certainly uh, food is going to provide them all yeah. to build a functional yeah. protein. You need all the amino okay. acids. Um, so anyway, you know, you can use a whey protein, a, a plant-based protein powder, whatever the preference of the runner is. So that's where you'd want to incorporate a plant-based uh, supplement, most likely to help replace those oxidative losses, and then two hours later, eat a whole food meal. So more frequent eating, because if you just try to eat a big bolus of food protein, my fear is that you're gonna not be able to swallow it all, and yeah. you're gonna be offsetting some of the other benefits of eating carbohydrates, for example, for glycogen resynthesis. So, so let me try to again to understand yeah, it. So, I, so I, went, I went for a run for sure. an hour. I finished the run, yep. okay? What should I do immediately post-run? I would consume about 20 grams of protein and about 50 grams of carbohydrate. Immediately um, post-run? I would, yes, definitely within that hour. So okay. that window of potential is much more shorter. Okay. That's largely because of the glycogen resynthesis. You still benefit from food protein, but muscle glycogen, which is our major fuel, we got to protect that yeah. if you're an endurance runner. So usually we advocate for endurance runners to... Make sure they're eating enough carbohydrate, and that's where I'd say make sure you also incorporate some some protein. That might make the most sense to use an isolated um, protein source to make sure it's easily you know gets in circulation yeah. quick. Then you can go home, eat your nice, proper, high quality, uh, you know, food first menu uh, approach, right? So where you eat you know a good source of food protein as well as you know some a good source of carbohydrates, yeah. yeah. So, so again, there is a difference which is interesting between endurance and strength. In strength, you have the window of three hours or even more. Yeah. Here, you need, you need uh, as soon as you can, to consume some protein and carbohydrate, that's and correct. then you can get back to your routine. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So, and again, runners are always so uh, focused on the carbohydrate, and they should, but they're not thinking a lot of times about how important the, the protein yeah. is to replace those amino acid uh, that were lost during yeah. the exercise bout, as well as making sure you have enough substrate to help your muscles yeah. recover. 
Yeah. Right. So a follow-up question. That was great. Uh, I think that there is a lot of confusion. And, yeah. uh, you know, you read the men health magazine, women health magazine, and they are yeah. uh, giving you stories that are usually not true. So it's great to, uh, to hear it from an expert like yourself. My next question is about, uh, uh, is there a difference in uh, 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 protein or amino acid uh, uh, needs based on age, gender, uh, ethnicity? Okay, yeah, I mean, again, that's using these top-down approaches. Um, a lot of times you got to be thoughtful about um, culture. What's the eating patterns, right? What's the habitual eating pattern? We sort of, I just sort of argued if you're eating a lot of vegan-based approaches you might have to be more thoughtful with your food protein if you have access to a lot of high quality animal based foods you can probably be less thoughtful yeah. with it right um so those you know so that is going to be dependent again um the personalized uh, approach as a as a scientist we sort of throw out these overarching generalized recommendations um but you know really you got to look at everything, you know, what's the exercise pattern? What type of, yeah. you know, what type of pattern is it? These kind of things. That's going to dictate your need. Age is an interesting one. Um, when I was over in the Netherlands, I focused a lot on aging and this concept of anabolic resistance. And what I mean by that is uh, what we were noticing was that as we age, you become more resistant to the food you're eating. Okay. So, what they were trying to do or what we were trying to do was sort of just feed more to overcome that anabolic resistance mm -hmm. all right so you know if an if an, a young person needs you know 15 to 20 grams of food protein to maximize the response we'd feed an old person 30 grams to try to elicit a bigger response mm -hmm. okay the beauty of exercises as i alluded to if we exercise and then eat food we can, we can sort of bring that protein load lower, okay? Because now we're, we're using exercise as a way to enhance this, the nutrient sensitivity, especially resistance exercise yeah. in particular. Um, so the other issue is what we see is with an older person, this is older men I'm talking about now, I can talk about postmenopausal women coming up next because this, this is another <laughs> whole scenario. Yeah, it's really um, interesting, yeah. Yeah, so older men, what we've noticed is that to really, from the weightlifting bout, to really induce a lot of nutrient sensitivity, they need a little more volume than their younger counterparts. So they need more repetitions. So example would be, if a young person needs three sets of 10 repetitions of a particular exercise to enhance their, to enhance their amino acid sensitivity of their muscles, an older person, what we see, needs closer to almost double the volume, so six sets, right? And so if you do enough volume on an aging muscle, we can enhance that sensitivity and the protein recommendations become a little more youth-like. Yeah. Okay. Can, Nick, can you define what is old in your way? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so usually 65 years or older. Yeah, so basically, uh, 70. basically uh, um, people above 60 or males above 65, yeah. uh, when you exercise and you see or your trainer telling you to do uh, uh, two repeats, maybe you need to do four to receive the yeah, same and, value. Yeah, that's right. And I'm just talking about... A, so we're talking about leg extension, yeah. right? And I'm, I recognize people are busy. You need to find time efficient strategies. Um, a lot of, you know, so it, we're not trying to advocate for doing, you know, spending more time in the yeah. gym. You can still be effective. You just might need a little more uh, as, as we get a little older, um, just to ensure that we completely yeah. enhance the nutrient sensitivity of that 
amino acid sensitivity yeah. of that skeletal muscle. So that was for older men. Postmenopausal women were just learning a lot. Um, unfortunately, um, I mean, as scientists, we recognize this, um, that we were studying <laughs> men <laughs> too much, right? And so now we're trying to better define the exercise needs, the protein needs um, of uh, older females. Um, I have some recent data that's showing, and um, a colleague uh, down in Mizzou has some that supports it as well, that I sort of said, Gil, as we're sitting here, basal turnover, we're in a constant state of turnover, right? So we're constantly breaking down, building up, breaking down, building up. Um, Postmenopausal women, their, their resting protein synthesis rate is higher than in older men, all right? It's probably related to hormonal, the yeah. estrogen, right? Yeah. So guess what? I, so an older female has a higher baseline rate. So what we know, what we've seen with that, because of this high resting turnover, there's less chance for them to make a big increase in response to food and exercise, all right? So we need to figure out, and I, we, I don't have the answer yet, we're working on it, how can we enhance the sensitivity of, of these aging uh, females, right? How can we sort of make sure that, yes, we're working against this higher background or this higher baseline rate of protein turnover, um, but I don't have the answer. I think it's some type of nutritional manipulation, some type of exercise manipulation over uh, one of my colleagues over in um, um, overseas, they're using estrogen replacement therapy mm -hmm. to sort of mellow that out. I, you know, I'm not saying <laughs> advocating for everybody to get on some type yeah. of pharmaceutical manipulation, but we got to figure that out. So there, there are differences. There's no difference between a young man and a young female, but there is difference with age. And yeah. I don't have all the answers yet for the so, postmenopausal. So, so if I understood you correctly, what, what you are saying that for postmenopausal women, it's harder for them to build muscle, correct? That's what we're they're, 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 it's, they're not responding. Yeah, it's harder for them. I don't know if harder is the right word, but um, they have this higher background. So they're, yeah, they're not, it's harder, I guess. Yeah, they're yeah. not responding to the yeah. same extent. Yeah. So if you, uh, I'm, try I'm trying to take the analogy that you gave, like a, a young male need to do, let's say, two repetitions. Yeah. A, a, well, yeah. a, a older men, let's say 65 to 70, need to do four repetitions. Yeah. What do you think about uh, postmenopausal women yeah. in there? Good question. I don't, I don't have the... Normally when we see this high baseline rate, and we see the same in Dallas's patients, um, we got to figure out a way to bring that baseline rate yeah. down to help them respond, okay? I, you know, we're working on it. I'm work with some of my, it's, it's something, you know, ask me in five, yeah. 10 years, hopefully we can figure this out. It's an important question. I, I have some ideas we're writing grants on, but I don't yeah. have the answer right okay. now at this time, Gil. Um, I should allude to, um, I know you use the two, four repetitions to keep it simple. Um, but, but generally, your muscle is going to respond better to a little higher volume than two yeah, 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 repetitions. Yeah. Let's yeah. say three and six. <laughs> now, now <laughs> okay. a, a yeah. follow-up question about postmenopausal women, because I think that's very important. Uh, and I think that I've, I see it in the gym. I don't know if you see it as well. And I spoke with some people. Somehow, they, uh, uh, let's say older women are getting less to the gym and uh, lifting weight than, uh, let's say, younger women, so older males and younger males. And I think yeah. that it's more in the, in the they feel like, at least 
my generation of women that are close uh, in the postman in the menopausal transition they feel like uh, building muscle is for males and not for females yeah, yeah. I, I mean I'm not a social scientist yeah I think hopefully that's changing um, we, we advocate that uh, a lot um, you know it's, it's a constant I, yeah I mean I, this could be for all yeah. for all um, you know males and females like when you're especially undergoing a program of weightlifting, um, the scale can be scary. Really, you yeah. got this is where your DEXA point yeah. comes in. You yeah. got to think about the composition of that absolute yeah, not mass. Not the weight, it's the composition. Yeah. yeah. So, this, you know, when, if you're undergoing a program of weightlifting, yeah, the scale is not your friend because mm -hmm. it, it can, I'm not changing, you know, my, my weight's not changing. But you're building muscle. Yeah, your composition's changing, yeah. right? You're getting more muscle, yeah. less fat. So yeah. phenotypically, uh, there, there are changes. So that's where, yeah, arguably the the body composition is much yeah. more important. But, yeah. but again, follow-up question again about the postmenopausal because it's very important. Yeah. So could it be uh, better for a, a, a woman, let's say a 40 years old woman, okay? She yeah. knows that she will come to the menopausal in the next 10 years or so, maybe 12 years. Is it a good strategy for her to come and say, later on it will be very hard for me to build muscle, so now I need to work hard to, to build as much muscle as I can yeah. in order to maintain it later? Is it a good strategy? Uh, I mean, arguably, that's a good strategy for all of us, Gil. I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to say it's. We all, as I alluded to, it's real. It's real important that we build strength now to help safeguard against these ultimate yeah. declines that we're going to experience. So, whether you're a male, female, whether you're you know 20 years old, it doesn't matter. It's our time now, yeah. right? You need to build build strength. And I think your point is it could be particularly important for exactly. an That's older woman. Exactly. That's what I'm trying woman. to say. Uh, um, for male, uh, okay, I so I need yeah. to spend instead of an hour in the gym, two hours in the gym, and I can still build muscle. For female, it will be harder. That's what I'm saying in the older age. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I, I, I can't put an absolute on it. Based on these acute data, there's some evidence to suggest that's true, Gil. Yeah. Rather, that plays out in the long term. Um, you know, that's where the longitudinal designs have to be done. And those are showing up now. Uh, the NIH and National Institute of Health have started to invest a little more heavily in, in understanding not only the aging impacts of exercise, but also any um, uh, gender-based differences yeah. as well. So, I, you know, so in the future, um, we'll have a lot more information um, than, than I can currently say now. I'm just, I'm, I'm doing a lot of speculation, which I love to do, but... I could be wrong. Yeah. No, absolutely, but uh, yeah. that's okay. It's a, it's a podcast. It's not a peer-reviewed scientific publication. So, Nick, it sounds like we are uh, uh, close to uh, time, and uh, I have like 50,000 more questions sure. that I would yeah. like to ask you, but uh, uh, unfortunately, you need to go back to your uh, subject and uh, collect muscle, that's which, I, again, I would love to see, but I'm not sure that I have time for. So, uh, uh, usually, at the last question at uh, Longevity by Design is... Uh, about if you can give one a, a tip of one recommendation for our audience, what is the best, if they can do only one intervention, sure. what is the best intervention that they should do in order to live better longer? <laughs> well, I mean, Gil, we know you are what you eat and how you move, right? So, you know, move, move more. That's the only tip. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what, if it's weightlifting, whatever. The biggest thing about moving is consistency. So do something you enjoy, do something that makes you smile and be consistent with it. That's the most important part, right? It does, you know, at the end of the day, move, move more however you want. Yeah, that's the biggest tip I can give, the most overriding tip. 
Excellent. So it was a pleasure uh, spending an hour plus with you. And yeah. it was a pleasure uh, spending time here at the uh, University of Illinois. Uh, I was, uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, uh, talk again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Gil. Appreciate it.